Amen. Well, if you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 14, we'll be returning to this great chapter in God's Word. And we return after a couple weeks break. Many of you know we recently had our fourth, fourth daughter, Rosalie. I was just so blessed to have um, the brothers here and some brothers from the church plant in Joliet be able to fill the pulpit for me during that time. Um, it was very restful for myself and for my family, but i um, eager to get back and get back to the Gospel of John this morning. So it's great to get back to this great book today. And if you remember, it's been so long since we've been back in John's Gospel, right? We need to remember where we came from. We saw in John's Gospel, really the first 12 chapters are what many call the Book of Signs. And if you remember, there's seven great signs that our Lord performs in those 12 chapters. Remember the turning of water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000, and kind of culminating in this great act of resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, pointing forward to Christ's future resurrection and our resurrection in Him. And we saw that these signs, while they're not meant to terminate on themselves, they're meant to point us to Christ, that He is the Spirit-anointed servant of the Lord that was promised in the Old Testament, but has now come in the fullness of time The Word that took on flesh, as John says in his prologue, He has come to show us that He is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer of God's people. But we saw at the end of chapter 12 that the people that He came to preach to rejected Him. They hardened their hearts against Him, and so He withdraws from them. And we saw that beginning in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, going all the way to the end, we call this the second book of John's Gospel, the the book of exaltation or the book of glory. And we saw in chapter 13 that Jesus has now gathered this sort of new covenant community around himself, namely the 12 disciples. That when everybody else has rejected him, his own people rejected him, he now gathers to himself a new people, a people of faith. And we saw how Jesus washed the disciples' feet, picturing his washing and cleansing by his blood. We saw the casting out of Judas from them. And we saw in chapter 14, the beginning of this great chapter, that our Lord is preparing the disciples for his coming departure. That he is indeed going to leave them. That he's not going to remain with them forever, but he is going to depart. And we see that this scares the disciples. (laughs) They're afraid. They're fearful. They're troubled in heart, and they are unsure of what is going on. They don't want Jesus to leave them. (laughs) They don't want Him to depart. He has been with them for the last three years. They do not want Him to leave. They don't want to be abandoned. They don't want to be left on their own. And so the disciples are afraid. They are fearful they are unsure, and they are troubled, and they don't want Jesus to be absent from them for even a moment. And maybe some of us can to relate to this sort of feeling that the disciples might be feeling in this sort of upper room, right? Maybe some of us can remember a time where it felt like the Lord was distant. It felt like the Lord was about to abandon us, about to leave us. Fear of loss of communion with God This is how the disciples are feeling in this moment. But what we're going to see today in our passage is that Christ 
is ultimately not going to leave them. He is not going to abandon them. He is not going to leave them as orphans, but he is going to come to them and he promises to be with them forever in the promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit, comforting his troubled disciples and by implication, us. And so what we're going to see is that our Lord not only speaks words of comfort to his disciples, but he promises them the comforter himself, namely the Holy Spirit, the great comforter of Christ's church, who will not only be evidenced in the disciples' love for Christ and the keeping of his commandments, but will be given by Christ to his people as a guarantee of his accomplished work and the abiding comforter of his church forever. So that's what we're going to see this morning. I'm going to read our passage, and then I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your holy and infallible word that you have given to us, your covenant people. The only means by which we can know and understand the way of salvation that is revealed in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, illumine our hearts as we seek to understand your word and as we seek to trust in what Christ has said. That there is no hope from us apart from the indwelling and abiding of the Spirit with us this morning. So we pray, Lord, that you would take the things of Christ and bring them to us this morning, that you would give us peace in the gospel and trust in all that Christ has done for us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to break this passage into three different parts this morning. We're going to look first in verse 15. We're going to see the Spirit evidenced. The Spirit evidenced. Secondly, in verses 16 and the first part of 17, we're going to look at the Spirit promised. And then finally, we're going to see the Spirit given. The Spirit evidenced, the Spirit promised, and the Spirit given. And we see in verse 15, our Lord points His disciples to their love for him, displayed and evidenced in the keeping of his commandments. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If your love for me is true, if it is genuine, if it is real, you will keep my commandments. Our Lord here does not doubt the disciples' love for him. He's not questioning their affection for him, but he points them to the fruit and the evidence 
of their love for Christ displayed in the keeping of his commandments. It's almost as if he's saying, seeing that you do love me, this is how that love for me will be displayed, will be manifested, will be evidenced, will be made known. You will keep my commandments. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and it almost feels totally separated from what came before and almost totally separated from what comes after. It sort of feels like an isolated verse. What does this have to do with the rest of this passage and what is going on in John chapter 14? And I also think how we read and understand and interpret this verse says a lot about how we think about God and the gospel of Christ. It's sort of a window into our hearts, I think, because for many of us, I think we can tend to see a word and a phrase like this, and we see it as a very conditional statement, right? Stating that if our obedience to Christ is enough, if it's sufficient enough, then we will have salvation, then we will have justification. We sort of see it as a, as a condition or as a means of our justification, that if we obey enough, If we have enough good works, then we will be saved. We sort of put Christ's work and our work as the basis of our foundation of salvation and not Christ's work alone. And when we do that, every sin we commit kind of becomes this crisis of faith. Am I really saved? (laughs) Did God really save me? Did he really change me? It becomes a time of questioning our salvation when we begin to equate Christ's work and our keeping of his commandments. But I think what we fail to see is that this is a great promise and guarantee of Christ in these words. The guarantee of Christ's work in us by the Spirit. Promising, if you love me, if you have been born again by the Spirit, if you have been given a new heart, then you will keep my commandments. This is how your love for me will be manifested. And if we go to the Old Testament, what are the great promises of the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36? We see this very similar language reflected in these promises. Jeremiah 31 says that God will write his law and his commands upon our hearts. He will put them within us. That's interesting. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you new hearts of flesh, causing you to walk in all my statutes and obey all my rules. (laughs) This is the law of God revealed in the moral law. How is this possible? How is God going to cause us to walk in his ways and follow his commands and laws? Ezekiel tells us that he will put his spirit within us. This is what God Will do. And this is not only true of believers in the New Testament, but true of all of God's people in both Old and New Testament that are found in the covenant of grace. And so, what we see here is the love for Christ and obedience to. And, sorry, let me say that again. What we see here is that love for Christ and obedience to his commands is the great fruit and evidence of the Spirit's work in us. It's not the ground and foundation of our salvation. Augustine famously said, there is no love without the Spirit. (laughs) There is no love without the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we can neither love God nor keep His commands. 
Without a new heart, by nature, we are children of wrath. Without God's law written on hearts of flesh, sensitive to the things of God, we remain cold and calloused and dead in our trespasses and sins. And without the Spirit regenerating and indwelling us, we cannot love Christ and obey the things of God. It's impossible. And so what we see is that keeping the commands of Christ is not the means of our salvation, but it's the fruit and evidence of God's work of salvation in us. This is showing what God has done in us by the Spirit. We want to obey because we have the Spirit. We keep Christ's commands because we have been born again. We walk in His ways because He has given us a new heart. Or we can summarize, as John does in 1 John, we love because He first loved us. This is the love of our great God. And so we see our Lord here speaks these words of comfort and peace to, a, to His disciples. If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. But we also read in 1 John this morning how we kind of get a commentary from John later on these words of our Lord. And it, we see that this this concept of if you love me, you will keep my commands is not only a means of assurance for God's people, but it's also a means of testing the soundness of our faith. We see in 1 John chapter 2, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, right? That the keeping of Christ's commands by the Christian is a means of assurance. It's not the foundation of our assurance, but it can strengthen our assurance that Christ has indeed done a good work in us. But we also see John go on to say this is a means of testing. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, right? So this is a means of testing whether someone is genuinely a Christian or not. They might say, I know Christ, I know him, but if they do not keep his commands and his laws, they're evidencing and showing that they do not truly know Christ and they do not truly love him because as we see, love for Christ is evidenced in obedience to his commands. But maybe you're feeling this morning like the disciples might be feeling after a statement like that. How, how can I keep the commands of Christ, right? How can I do these things perfectly? How in the world are we going to do what Christ has called us to? How can Christ leave us and expect us to still obey his commands and laws? How are these things possible? And that brings us to our second point this morning, the Spirit promised. The Spirit promised. We see in verse 16 that our Lord does not leave the disciples in dis in suspense. He does not leave them to their own devices, but he promises them the provision of the Spirit, the great comforter, advocate, and helper of Christ's church. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. We see in these verses the promise of the Holy Spirit, called here the Spirit of Truth, the Helper, the Advocate, the Comforter, the Counselor, the third person of the Triune God, the Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. And our Lord here knows what the disciples are feeling. <laughs> 
They feel overcome. They feel afraid. They are fearful for the future. They're afraid of his coming departure. And so he comes to them and he speaks to them these words of comfort and promises them the comforter himself in the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now we need to ask ourselves, why were the disciples sorrowful, right? Why were they afraid? It's easy to look back and be like, stop being so fearful, (laughs) right? Stop doubting. Stop being so troubled in your soul. Everything's going to be okay. But how were they feeling in that moment? Why were they so sorrowful? Why were they troubled in their heart? Because they thought that Christ's coming departure from them meant his total absence from them. That his going away would diminish their communion and fellowship with him, right? Surely that feels like if he's going away, our communion and our fellowship with him will be diminished or lost. But our Lord here points them to the very opposite reality, (laughs) that it is actually by his going away that their communion and fellowship with him is increased and strengthened. Or what he says in John 16, verse 7, it is better that I go. It is to your advantage that I go, even though I will not be present with you bodily because of my divine nature, I will not be absent from you for a moment. But notice first in verse 16, the great Trinitarian unity of this work. The great Trinitarian unity of this work. The, Father, the Son says, I will ask, I will pray. The Father says, I will give, I will send. And the Spirit says, I will come and I will comfort. All three persons of the one Godhead, not to be divided, but distinguished. We see the Father sending, the Son interceding, the Holy Spirit being poured out, each work consistent with their eternal relations of origin. The Father unbegotten, the Son eternally begotten, and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And so we see in this verse the glory of the triune God at work in the history of redemption. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work in our salvation. But notice secondly the peculiar office and work of the Holy Spirit described here. The peculiar office and nature of this work of the Spirit. That the Spirit here is called the Helper. In Greek, parakletos, right? The Helper, the the Counselor, the Advocate, the Great Comforter of Christ's church. That Christ here promises to ask the Father, and on the basis of Christ's finished work, He will give to them another Comforter. The Spirit Himself who will perform this work and this office, taking the things of Christ and giving them to His people, shining the love of God into their hearts by faith, opening the precious promises of the Gospel to them, being the spirit of adoption that calls out Abba Father and abiding with them forever as the seal and pledge of their future glory. This is what Christ here promises to pray for and accomplish. But it's not only in regards to the Spirit's work of salvation, but the Spirit's work as a great comforter and advocate to God's people. Comforting saints in their affliction and their sorrow. 
the spirit of peace that is able to bring peace to God's people that surpasses understanding. Bringing love, delight, and joy to the weary souls of believers. But the Spirit's not only the great comforter of God's people, we also see how the Spirit is a great advocate, (laughs) empowering the witness of Christ to the world, giving Christ's church the gifts that it needs to accomplish this work of seeing the world come to faith in Christ. Convincing the world, as we'll read later, of sin, of righteousness, and judgment that this promised sending of the Holy Spirit points directly to the Spirit's work and the economy of salvation. But we also see, thirdly, the duration and the continuation of this great promise. The duration and the continuation of this great promise. That the Spirit will abide with Christ's people forever. (laughs) That the Spirit will abide with Christ's people forever. He says in verse 16, that He may be with you forever. Not for a little while. Not for a couple years. Not He will be with you until you commit a major sin. Not He will be with you unless you really mess up. But He will be with you forever. For all time. And our Lord here is not just speaking to the disciples gathered around Him, but by implication to all true believers. That the Spirit will preserve and keep His people until the end, sealing them until the day of redemption, the same Spirit that is present in Christ's church even to the end of the age. This is the promise we have of the perseverance of the saints, this continual dwelling and abiding of God's Spirit with his people forever and a means of great comfort to Christ and his Christ church. But we see fourthly and finally that this great promise of our Lord also has a great contrast and an exclusivity to it. We see in verse 17 that the spirit is the one whom the world cannot receive. The spirit is the one the world cannot receive that this world and those in it of a carnal and natural mind cannot receive the spirit or the things of the spirit what will paul say in first corinthians chapter 2 the natural person does not understand the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him (laughs) they are foolishness The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And Jesus here gives us the answer to why. Why is this so? Why can the the world not, not receive the Spirit? Jesus says, because the world neither sees Him nor knows Him. The world neither sees Him nor knows Him. Now, we all know that no one can see God, right? As the children's catechism question says, God is Spirit and does not have a body right? And I told my kids this morning, I'd be doing a pop quiz this morning, right? That the the boys and girls catechism question says, can you see God? And the answer is no, but he always sees me, right? So what does Jesus mean here when he says that the world cannot see the Spirit? The Spirit is God and no one can see God. Is Jesus just stating something that's true of everyone? What does he mean when he says these words that the world cannot see him? 
What he means here is that the world does not see the Spirit in the sense that it does not desire the Spirit, nor can it see the things of the Spirit. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus all the way back in John chapter 3? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the scene that Jesus is referring to. But not only can the world not see him, but the world does not know him because he is the spirit of truth. Because he is the spirit of truth, exposing the works of sin and darkness. Or what do we read in John chapter 3? This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That the world in its sin cannot know the Spirit because it does not want to know the Spirit. It is not only a matter of ability, but desire. The world loves its darkness. The world loves its sin. The world cannot receive, cannot see, and cannot know the Spirit. But that's what makes the next words of our Lord so amazing and so profound. Because he says to them in verse 17, but you do know him. But you do know him. That the Spirit of truth, the helper, the great comforter of Christ's church, God's people know him. They know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you, and he will not leave you as orphans. But Jesus says, and I will come to you. And that in many ways leads us to our third and final point this morning, the Spirit given. The Spirit given. And in many ways, this sort of slingshots us to the rest of redemptive history at this point. It points us to the book of Acts where we see this great act at Pentecost of the Spirit given. And as we come to Acts, we see that the same Spirit that hovered over the chaos waters in Genesis 1, the same Spirit who spoke through the prophets of the Old Testament, who inspired the writing of Holy Scripture, who dwelt in the Shekinah glory cloud in the temple, whose power and majesty the disciples witnessed in the life and ministry of Jesus, who Jesus promised to give upon his ascension, that same Spirit is indeed given. That same Spirit is indeed given. That on the day of Pentecost, as these same disciples are gathered together in the upper room, after our Lord's death and burial, after his resurrection and ascension, we read in the book of Acts of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That Christ, having accomplished the work of redemption in his active and in his passive obedience, securing perfect righteousness by his perfect obedience to God's commands as the last Adam, and suffering perfectly for the sins of his people, Christ is exalted, we read in the book of Acts, to the right hand of the Father. And we read that upon his exaltation, he receives from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and pours out the Spirit upon his church. 
This is what our Lord has done for for us. And so we see, when you turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 33, we see indeed that the Spirit is given. Not only given to Christ by the Father on behalf of His accomplished work, but we see that the Spirit is given from Christ to His people just as He promised. The definitive and culminating act of His once-for-all accomplishment of salvation. Christ pours out His Spirit. Now at this point, some of you might be thinking something, right? You might have these questions that are popping up in your head, and it's good if you're thinking along these lines. It sounds, Kendall, like you're saying two different things, right? It sounds like you're saying the Spirit was at work, but the Spirit was not yet given. How can these two things be true in the same way, at the same time? How can the Spirit be working in Old Testament saints, working in the disciples gathered in the upper room, but yet not poured out because the day of Pentecost had not yet come? How can these two seemingly contradictory things be true? And surprisingly, you'll get lots of strange answers to this question, right? Some people will see and see passages like this that says, He will be with you. And they'll assume that the Spirit did not exist before the day of Pentecost, right? This obviously denies the eternality of the Spirit. Some people will say, well, the Spirit was working, but not in Old Testament believers, right? This denies what we believe about saving faith and the the nature of regeneration. But some people will say that the Spirit, yes, regenerated Old Testament saints, but it did not indwell them. That's what our Lord means here when He says, He dwells with you, but He will be in you. That He makes some sort of distinction between regeneration and this indwelling of the Spirit. That somehow, at the day of Pentecost, this new benefit of salvation was somehow given. They'll point to places like John 7, 39 to kind of prove these things. So how are we to understand this passage and this seeming contradiction that we see in Scripture? How does what we believe about salvation, about the promises found in places like Ezekiel 36 and this new covenant affect how we interpret these passages? But I think when we begin to see that the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it does not mark a new benefit of salvation that did not exist and that Old Testament saints did not receive, but rather is the culminating act of Christ's once-for-all accomplishment of salvation. Right, Just as the cross of Christ does not need to be repeated, so too Pentecost does not need to be repeated because it is an accomplishment of what God has done by the Spirit. Just as we believe the benefits of Christ's death were communicated and applied to Old Testament saints by the types and shadows, even though His death had not yet occurred, in the same way we see that the Old Testament saints were indwelt and saved by the Spirit even before the day of Pentecost. And that this sending of the Spirit actually shows us what the Spirit has been doing all along. It's revealing to us what God has been doing since Genesis 3.15 and the promise of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, taking the benefits of the promised mediator and bringing them to God's people. The Spirit did not begin doing this work at the day of Pentecost, but we rather see it revealed through the redemptive mission of the Spirit. 
regenerating God's people and indwelling them by the Spirit. The Father planning the work of salvation, the Son accomplishing the work of salvation, and the Spirit finishing and completing the work for God's people, applying the benefits of Christ to his people. And so that's why Jesus can say these profound and comforting words in verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He is absent from them in one sense, but he is present with them in another. And far from the disciples being orphaned by him, God's people are given the spirit of adoption. Christ will be present with us, not only by his spirit daily, but certainly at the end of the age. He will come to us, he will return, and he will gather his people to himself to be with him bodily forever. And so as we begin to think about this passage and how it applies to us this morning, we first see this great provision that Christ has made for his people in the help and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We see the great provision Christ has made for his people in the help and comfort of the Holy Spirit. That we, if we're honest with ourselves, are a lot like the disciples in this upper room. We are very weak. We are very frail. We, if we're honest, we do not love Christ as we should. We do not keep his commands as he has commanded us. And we, like the disciples, assume that Christ has abandoned us. But we see in our passage that Christ knows our weakness, he knows our failings, and he promises us help and comfort by his spirit, God himself, to help us in our fight against sin, to comfort us in our downcast state, and to remind us that we are indeed children of God. And it is to our great shame that we so often forget this truth, right, brothers and sisters? We so often forget that God has given us his spirit to comfort us, <laughs> to help us in our time of need. We can call upon the spirit when we need help. We can ask in our time of need, in our time of trial or temptation or tribulation, we can call out to the Spirit for help, praying for strength and comfort in our darkest hour. This is the Spirit's work in believers. And I love what John Owen says. He says, the Holy Spirit is the great comforter of the church of God. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the great comforter of the church of God, and the world does not know this comfort. The world cannot know the comfort of God's Spirit, but God's people do. God's people know this comfort of the, of the Helper, and they are comforted by it. And we so often forget because we fear that our sin will separate us from God somehow, that it will leave us as orphans. But because of what Christ has done, he has adopted us into his family as beloved children. As we confessed this morning, we are pitied, protected, and provided for by our Father. We read in places like Romans 8 that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God leading us into all truth and bringing the benefits of Christ to the souls of believers, namely through the ordinary means of grace, right? 
So maybe the exhortation this morning is don't neglect the means of grace. Don't neglect the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper because it is through those means that God's Spirit strengthens and comforts God's people. It's through those means that Christ is present with His church by His Spirit, comforting and helping them. But secondly, we should take comfort in the Comforter. Take comfort in the Comforter. Because what we see in the accomplishment of salvation and the pouring out of the Spirit is that Christ has finished salvation. We cannot see Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father, but the fact that the Spirit has been poured out is proof that Christ has done it. He has finished the work of salvation. There's no more work to be left. Christ has done it all, and so now we can trust and rest in His finished work. He has not left us as orphans, but He abides with His people forever to help us in our difficulties, to illumine the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to comfort us even in our worst depression. And even when all else fails, when we are afraid, when we are troubled, when we are fearful, and when we are helpless, we can cry out with that great hymn, Abide with me. And as we'll sing in a couple minutes, the song says, Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. That's our prayer this morning, that the Lord would abide with us by His Spirit. Every other helper will fail us. Every other comfort will fail, but Christ has given us His Spirit to be with us forever. So let's praise Him and thank Him for His grace as we pray to Him, even now. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these precious and great promises that You have given to us in Your Word. That even though at many times in our walk we feel helpless and afraid and almost as if You have abandoned us, may we cling to these promises this morning that you have not abandoned us. You will not leave us as orphans, but because of Christ's work, you abide with us by your Spirit, indwell us, and will be with us forever. This is our great hope this morning. This is the only hope that will be with us in times of trial and tribulation and our only comfort in life and in death. And so we pray this morning that you would take these truths and that you would write them upon our hearts that we might hold fast to your word, hold fast to your promises, and rest in the gospel that Christ has accomplished for us. We need your help this morning by your spirit to take these things of Christ, the benefits that he has won, and bring them to our souls. And we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.